Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. As always, I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. I'm always Sam Andrew. And I'm still Alvin Tejo. Just, you know, constant, you know, I, I thought I had a quip there. No quip came. Uh, on the pod today, Corey Preston, former advisor to the Minister of Municipal Affairs, sat down for a chat with Alexi in a series we're calling Better Know a Ministry, where we talk in detail about the functioning of different government ministries that don't always make the headlines, but serve key roles in supporting the fabric of our life. So uh, really excited to have Corey on the pod. Also, um, uh, Alexi, I feel like this is, uh, we've needed to have Corey back for quite some time ever since, and listeners will not know this, in our very early days, we had Corey on for an episode that, before I knew how to operate microphones and stuff, was of such bad recording quality that we had to basically throw it out. So apologies, Corey, and glad to have you back on the pod. Uh, but first, it was quite a week for the news, uh, and particularly in the legislature. It has seemed as of late that much of the dynamic out of Queen's Park has been uh, from the premier to the media. But this week, there's been a lot going on with legislation and policy with the opposition. And I think where we saw some good old-fashioned house politics in full display. From a scathing AG report on the government's COVID preparedness and management to an all-party brawl on capping food delivery charges. Um, and uh, on a slightly nerdier note, the implementation of performance-based funding in the university sector and college sector. There's a lot going on. Uh, so maybe let's dive in with the week's biggest story, the AG report, finding overall that Ontario's response to COVID was slower and more reactive relative to other provinces uh, with pretty much which is something that I feel like we've talked about a lot on this pod. But Alexi, what did the auditor have to say about it? So the special report by the AG is broken down into three chapters, emergency management, outbreak planning and decision-making, and testing, case management, and contact tracing. So some of the details probably helped put some context around why things went so poorly. So for example, uh, the AG talks about how the Ontario command structure quickly ballooned out of control. This year, the health command table began as 21 people and by August was up to 90 people with 25 subtables representing over 500 people in total. So this is vastly larger than the structures in other provinces. And keep in mind, a lot of these meetings were by teleconference for most of the most of the pandemic before they switched to video. So apparently people didn't know who was talking. They didn't know the credentials of the people who were talking, who was from public health, who wasn't like sounds like a total shit show. The Provincial Emergency Management Office was also working off of plans that had not been updated since 2013, and uh, Ontario was the only province that hired external consultants to create a brand new response structure, which of course significantly delayed the provincial response. Uh, the AG also talks a lot about the chief medical health officer and other public health officials not actually leading Ontario's response. So uh, the CMOH was... Uh, only present at the central coordination table meetings when agenda items required him. Even regional response structures were generally not led by the public health experts in those regions. The CMOH also did not fully exercise his powers under the Health Protection and Promotion Act, and he did not issue directives to local medical officers of health to ensure consistency or issue directives on their behalf. Uh, the province was also slow to expand testing capacity, failed to meet its own goals, and ignored expert advice that it would be a waste of resources to expand testing to anyone who wanted it, for example. Uh, the province-wide testing statistics also masked large delays in major urban areas. So, for example, between March and August, it took 5.75 days on average for Toronto to test specimens and start case management. Uh, and at that point, I mean, why bother? You're, you're so many days in. So, 
that's you know all um, some pretty scathing stuff about uh, how the government coped. Of course, it is important to note that the seeds of some of this poor response do go back to the liberals. Some of the emergency management issues go back to um, you know ten years ago at least. Some of the lessons from SARS do not seem to have been learned. So um, plenty of blame here to go around. Oh, and uh, there are going to be three more chapters, the AG said, that she's going to be publishing in the near future. One of them is going to cover management of health-related COVID expenditures. One's going to cover PPE. And the last one's going to cover long-term care. So look for those. Thanks, Lexi. Now, we've had our fair share of disagreements with the Auditor General. For example, uh, her hit job on the OSAP expansion and her questionable approach to pension valuations. And I think it's interesting because this government's response has been that this is not a value for money audit. Bonnie Lyshik is not a health expert and therefore her uh, analysis is not accurate. Is there anything to that? Uh, and do we think this was a fair report? Yeah, I think I think a lot of things about this. I think, number one, an independent officer should not become the story herself or himself. I think Andre Moran did that as ombudsman. I think clearly Bonnie Lysak has now done that as AG. Um, and I think that means it's time to step away. Like I think the importance of the work is so great uh, that there cannot be a multi-partisan consensus that the AG steps outside of her scope and or isn't good at her job or whatever criticisms have been leveled. Um, I thought there were some really interesting takeaways out of the report i think the section on on testing and contact tracing was kind of particularly enlightening as happens with these things it's a little late like i was reading it being like this is super interesting about what happened in you know june to august contact (laughs) tracing but i'm like it's november this is no longer relevant um when it kind of made me think like is the whole report kind of too much a snapshot in time of time past and uh, like in such a present emergency. But to answer, I guess, your specific question about, um, you know, is the criticism fair? I think I think there are parts that are very Auditor General-like. And then as this Auditor General is want to do, uh, go way too far. And I think the fact that her number one takeaway in her reflection section and what was clearly the headline was that the administrative structure that was set up, the decision-making structure internal to government was overly cumbersome. I just don't think that, who could decide that, right? This is the greatest threat to society in you know more than a generation. Who's to say who needs to be at the decision-making table? And surely an accountant and an auditing background is not qualify you to decide that um so i just think there were places where she clearly strayed too far uh, and therefore did a disservice to the whole thing i think politically it was damaging for ford i like like i think the headlines were bad um and it added fuel to uh, already a raging fire but um but i don't i don't think it was a completely fair report you know what this reminds me of you know how you sometimes read um foreign uh, correspondents talk about Canada and Canadian elections and you're like that's kind of accurate but it's not really and you're like how much do they get wrong about the stuff we read about in other places so you know thinking back about how wrong this auditor general has been and how bad this auditor general has been for things that we knew really well that she was just completely off base I mean I don't want to defend this government at all but I do have some sympathy that you know, she might be wrong on a lot of this stuff, but it's still important, I think, that there was some work done and that there is a bit of reflection of 
you know, what made sense and what didn't. Um, and I want to call out as much as possible that this government did not or has not uh, done the right thing at multiple stages throughout this process, right? So I'm still, you know, satisfied that that piece came out and that uh, this government knows that they can't uh, do whatever they want without any scrutiny. Um, but I do get the sense that the AG probably got a few things wrong and maybe not all the criticisms are necessarily fair. Yeah, I will be uh, transparent uh, our, our listeners that, you know, I think all of us uh, have worked at ministries where the Auditor General has been doing audits before, and uh, all of us lived through the frustration of uh, some of her interactions with the um, provincial government uh, when we were involved in it, you know, and like refusing to sign off the books, change it because she reversed a, you know, decades old accounting principle um, and, you know, having the PCs use that and spin that up into a narrative of the government is cooking the books was like, I think a really frustrating and political move for an auditor general to take. So I think I share a sense of frustration with this auditor general. But Um, at the same time, Chris, I mean, this government, when they were in opposition, can't say that everything the AG said was accurate. And then now when they're in government, be like, well, screw you. Now that we're in government, we're going to say that you're not accurate. Well, that is just about what I, that is just what I was going to say, Alvin, is that like, I also have such a sense of schadenfreude because this government pumped up the AG so much and now their criticism is like dialed up to like 11, way farther than we ever went. We actually never attacked her credibility. We never attacked her credentials um, or her ability to comment on issues. We actually, you know, hired uh, other experts to contradict her and sort of trusted that the court of public opinion will work out this government has done an about face basically you know criticizing us for attacking her character and now this government is directly attacking her character so i think they have uh you know they've been hoisted by their own petard a little bit on this issue and i'm i'm here for it um even though i'm not here for the phrase hoisted by one's own petard um so turning uh to another key feature of uh turning from maybe the pandemic response to another key feature of pandemic life uh food delivery um it is basically the only way those of us in lockdown can get access to restaurant food now uh, and in many ways is keeping the industry afloat but it is controlled by technology platforms like uber eats and doordash and skip the dishes you know them uh you may love them, you may not love them, but local businesses have been complaining for quite some time now that these companies charge significant percentages of uh, and significant levies in order to access the services. And so, Sam, uh, this has been a growing issue at Queen's Park, and it kind of bubbled over last week, I think, in a really interesting, um, you know, uh, multi-party kind of way. So uh, can you take us through what happened? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, as you say, the high commission rates that many of these platforms charge, Uber Eats uh, is claimed to be the worst at 30% uh, commission off of the fee, um, has been a political football at Queen's Park for a while now. I went back and checked Hansard, and it is true that the Liberal Party, MPP Amanda Smard, first raised the issue in the legislature in May and asked at that time for a 15% cap be put in place. And I think it was inspired several U.S. cities, San Francisco, L.A., New York, have put in in place similar measures as part of their pandemic response. Um, Doug Ford did finally ask the platforms back in October uh, to reduce their rates and indicated that if they didn't, the 
that his government would be taking action. Uh, so Skip the Dishes did cut their commission rates for uh, regions in the lockdown by 25%. Uh, DoorDash uh, said they are waiving fees for customers that spend more than $25. And uh, Ritual and the City of Toronto also partnered to offer commission-free delivery until November. So there was some movement. However, I think you know the key target in all this Uber Eats has not caved and has not reduced their 30% rate. So on Thursday, the Associate Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Production introduced the Supporting Local Restaurants Act. It enables the government to set fee limits by regulation for any restaurant not in a chain of 10 or more restaurants. um, And that has indoor dining that's been um, uh, affected by lockdown restrictions. Um, And they verbally said that they intend to use that power to cap uh, delivery fees at 15% and 20% inclusive of all fees. So, and then as you alluded to, just just a little weird political drama to this story. So the Ontario Liberals then immediately, apparently within five minutes, moved a motion to pass the legislation with unanimous consent in the legislature, and the NDP voted against that. Uh, Stephen Del Duca was out immediately saying the NDP owe restaurant owners and employees an apology. The NDP responded uh, that a, they didn't have time to read the bill um, and got caught by surprise, but also B, the vast majority of restaurants in Ontario are not covered, I think alluding to the fact that, it, that chain restaurants are not covered um, and that uh, they would be trying to amend the bill. Um, as, so that's sort of the state of play. Uh, so the bill will now kind of course its way through the legislature. I also just want to point out, as I was kind of digging into this, how kind of fucked up this whole model is so like most of these platforms including uber and doordash are not profitable even with these 30 percent uh you know rates you know uber lost 1.8 billion dollars last year doordash 450 million and they basically are all trying to play this amazon game of being the last uh, platform standing after subsidizing losses for many years with investment cash um, and in fact they give basically free delivery to big chains like you know mcdonald's and stuff uh and to that they have credibility and they force all the local independent restaurants to basically pay their total their all their costs and so all in all this is a very messy tale but a politically interesting one and with new the new uber eats pass anybody using the new uber eats pass it's incredible i'm not using it yet (laughs) i met some friends like for ten dollars to have no service fees to get them get your groceries as long as it's over forty dollars like that's that's amazing how are they making any money on that they're not the entire thing is just like a loss leader as is the entire uber business model it's a bit crazy i have kind of two thoughts here uh a um being that like the more i have looked into this uh the less good i have felt using uber even though it is such a key like getting things delivered is actually like a safety thing in you know a lot of places like i but like i think it is a a, a, like a reminder that do not think governments at any level are doing enough for small businesses who are impacted um like the premier has done a lot of overtures and you know says he really feels for small businesses and like certainly this move will help and designing it like i don't know enough about the policy to you know evaluate the liberal and the ndp positions and i think it's interesting that all parties agree that this is an issue but you know i really like would like to see a plan to subsidize more of the cost of these restaurants because right now we are sort of throwing them to a market where they are, need to be dependent on these large tech platforms and you know we've seen in some cities that uh you know local apps are forming to try and you know 
uh, restaurant groups are trying to get together to like have sort of local like there's a made in Toronto solution coming but you know who knows what the uptake on these things will be and you know like time is ticking like the months of this pandemic are ticking on and people are going to lose jobs and I think like if we want to have the restaurants that we have now at the end of this we need to think about that as a policy problem and this uh, is a move that will help but not entirely address it um uh, yeah, and so, maybe I'll just hum one bar on that, which is there's an interesting kind of movement like civic tech and, you know, tech for good in which, um, you know, municipal governments or governments of any type build this type of technology in the public interest, take this out of the private domain um, for industries like this, where just the margins are too small to um, for it to be workable in, in the private sector. There's obviously lots of, you know, good, important questions about the role of the public and waste and the appropriateness of that in any one industry. But I just think it's a really interesting question. I think these political battles that you see play out about like, is it 30 versus 15 are just symptoms of much deeper, much more challenging uh, public policy questions uh, that kind of treat, treat the symptom, but not the disease. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's not lost in me that the, backbone of the low fees of this are you know delivery personnel who are in many cases not paid uh you know what you would in a uh non uber or doordash or skip the dishes structure also that and are the people getting covid as we know from the tracing data right like the whole thing is it's i don't know there's no perfect answer but i also just hate the like when when things are so close to actually getting done and then they don't get done because of, oh, it's not the perfect solution. It's not exactly what we want. And then it doesn't get done. It's like childcare federally, you know, a dozen years ago or basic income in the U.S. when Democrats voted that down. I was like, well, it's not actually. N- let's get it going and then let's make it better after that. You've got to think the NDP regrets what they did. Like, I, I, I wonder yeah. if they try to find an out now and get past it by unanimous consent again later or something because you know i think it was i think it's fair to question ford's bills right like he's clearly shown an ability to put weird stuff in in bills called something else but i've i've read the legislation the legislation does what it says it's going to do so let's just get on with it yeah no agreed i also think the house seemed like a chaotic place last week i mean the ndp managed to get a motion condemning charles uh mcvetty through non-binding on the government but you know there's clearly a lot happening right now and you know this yeah strikes me as a the kind of thing that might have been a mistake uh, or a decision made too hastily without full context as opposed to you know an intentional strategic move but Um, like if you look at the like the timing of that vote there was like all the members all the government members were within five minutes of that actual vote because they showed up to vote five minutes later for something else, which goes right. to show you a number of them made the conscious decision of not showing up. This is on the Charles McVeigh. Fascinating. Thing? Yes. Yeah, it is really fascinating. Absolutely. And I would really like to see their caucus have like some sort of internal revolt and change this somewhere on the inside. Maybe we not hear what goes on, but we'll see the result. I'm kind of fascinated that it hasn't happened yet. But like the fact that it's still in the bill, like makes me think hard about what promises were made because they're dealing with a lot of blowback for like very little reward right now. Well, it was Doug's first like that's how he won his leadership. Right. I mean, he owes Charles everything in terms of where he is right now. Yeah. But as you know, in politics, 
you know, you're only as good as, <laughs> I'm forgetting the expression, but basically you stab people in the back all the time when <laughs> you have to. <laughs> and so the fact that they're not is interesting. It's a tried, tested, and true path in uh, with the social conservatives too, you I know. We, we, it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were going to have abstinence-based sex ed or whatever, and now we have mostly what we did. Um well, finally, in a more under-the-radar but also important topic to those of us on the pod, the government announced last week that it had signed new strategic mandate agreements with Ontario's universities and colleges, uh, completing a years-long pledge to implement a performance-based funding system that will uh, eventually have performance-based funding make up 60% of public funding for higher education, I believe, by the years 2024-25. So... Chris, can I start this section by apologizing to everybody on this call that this still exists? <laughs> because it yeah. was my minister at the time, Glenn Murray, who decided he wanted to blow the whole thing up and wrote a paper uh, when I was in the minister's office that basically was the precursor to this whole damn thing. Uh, and we're now 10 years later and we're still talking about it. Um, yeah. Not saying that it wasn't necessarily a good exercise, although I think some of the versions weren't necessarily a good exercise. Um, but I mean, Chris, you worked a lot on this when you were in the public service. Um, can you walk us through how we basically got to this particular point now? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, like the point like, that you just made that like the roots of this performance-based funding system that we um, all hate now actually do have its root in the liberal government, not the 60% performance funding that was never envisioned. Um, but uh, to, uh, this sort of model of reform and increasing an outcomes focused system did get it started a little while ago. Um, historically, universities and colleges have been funded on an enrollment basis. Um, but like going back to the mid 2000s, there was a fear in government and the sector um, that, and especially after the sort of 2008 financial crisis and the aftermath of that and high youth unemployment, uh, that both the value of a university or college degree wasn't quite what it was and the sector needed to do more to justify its value to the public. Uh, and additionally, there was a bit of a demographic decline. There'd been years of growth in enrollment and students um, in sort of the, the 15 years prior, and it was the, the demographics were starting to take a dip. And so um, after many years of consultation, dialogue, and deliberation, the liberal plan had been to make many, um, had been basically to take many of the facets of university funding and create a uh, new pocket of funds for which institutions would individually negotiate performance targets on. And that's kind of where the liberal government left it. So can you maybe walk us through how we got to this now 60% uh, performance funding and tying it to sort of the 10 metrics that they're looking at? Well, as with all things the Ford government did in its first year, uh, it saw a China shop, decided to enter that China shop with a sledgehammer and just swing itself wildly around. Um, I would think it's fair that the liberal government you know, implemented the strategic mandate agreement system, individual negotiations over a central pot of funds with every different university on different things. Um, but it didn't go much further than that in terms of specifics. The original idea, I think, was to create multiple different ways to fund post-secondary education based on different policy priorities, like Alexi was saying. Um, rather than fund everyone for everything, you could put some funding into research and have the institutions that had negotiated strengths in research 
the higher recipients of that funding. Uh, and you could also create pots for student success, for experiential learning, things that might carry more currency with the public and um, you know, help address some of that uh, legitimacy and issue that the government felt the universities had. What the Ford government did was made everyone compete on the same metrics. So the idea, uh, so all, all of a sudden the idea of having different universities specialize in different things is kind of out the door. Every university has to participate in the same 10 metrics on this, in this system. Uh, secondly, the way the Ford government has set this up, there's no new money on the table. So there's no in institutions can lose money if they that they already get if they dip on their performance targets, but there's no incentive for anyone to do anything good or better in this system. You are basically not punished if you maintain, and so I think we can expect every university and college to maintain. Lastly, I mean, I don't think the uh, the liberal government ever imagined um, replacing enrollment-based funding on the scale or implementing performance funding on the scale. 60% is a massive amount of funding. You know, that's, the, that's most of that money now tied to these sort of 10 metrics. But, you know, as more students come to universities, you know, you need to hire more teachers. You need to hire more TAs. You need, like, universities and colleges will need more money if student, more students show up, which we hope that they do. And they've turned off the taps on enrollment-based funding. There's no more funding for new students that is on the table right now. And, you know, they're all playing this metric. So it's kind of a bit of a shell game. And it's turned into, I think, at its core, a fancy, overly complex way to keep funding frozen. Um, I'm curious what you guys think, though. Like, did we make a mistake by, you know, starting this conversation about outcomes, seeing now where the Ford government took it? Well, but also, like, what is the way to get to transformation if that's if that was our goal, right? Because I think 10 years ago, we saw the challenge being that everyone was running to the enrollment dollars. Everyone was just trying to get more students. We were using the Ray review from 2007 as sort of a framework to say, we need to change this because we've essentially created, what, seven, eight new universities just by increasing the enrollment to our post-secondary institutions to the point where everybody wanted a teacher's college and everybody wanted a, you know, engineering school and everybody wanted a new campus. Um, and we couldn't, I, I don't think the system is built to be all things to all people in all places, right? And there were lots of examples that we were looking at, uh, University of California, like there's lots of, you know, systems that are publicly funded that have a better way of delivering the post-secondary or tertiary needs of the population. If this wasn't the right thing, I don't know, like, what else should we have done? And I guess 10 years later, we, this is a good time to sort of reflect on it. And we've all spent time in the ministry. So we all sort of saw the shit show that this turned into, right? If we could do it yeah. again, <laughs> what should we have done differently? My biggest criticism of, I think, where the process landed, and I mean, I guess it's self-criticism as well, because um, I was on the funding formula review that that put this through, but was uh, really leaving it to the next government to fill in all of the blanks. Because, you know, in making everyone compete in the same universe of things, um, in not putting any new money into this, which of course is, you know, pretty typical and could be expected of a conservative government. I think you're you've landed in a place where, you know, this is a system that will not really serve the objectives, but like there are, are potential values here. I mean, 
one of the things that never made it into the policy, but I remember talking about a lot at the time was, you know, you could use a system like this to move every school away from wanting to do research. Um, you know, you could create a, by creating different ways that the government can value activity at universities and colleges with funding, you could uh, say that, okay, you know, we're going to make $10 million of research funding available and $30 million of student success and experiential learning funding available. If you want the $10 million of research, you're competing with U of T. But if you're doing, if you're in the other pools, there are different rules. And like there are, I think something like that was, I think, sort of the idea of where this could evolve to at least that, you know, uh, where I saw it, but, um, and actually like giving, putting incentives into different priorities, but um, obviously that's not where it landed. And I think that is um, because the, and there was not a clean and singular idea in government at the time as to where we wanted this to go. That's kind of like, I kind of just gave you the equivalent of hallway conversations about possibilities, but you know, that's a, a government who want stewardship of a system should before going down that path have a clear idea of what that stewardship means and i think like my big criticism is i I never really got a sense of that from the previous liberal government hey listeners it's me chris martin you might remember me from such roles as that conversation on performance funding and post-secondary education you just listened to or any of the other podcasts you've listened to before this if you enjoy ontario loud i encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash ontario loud or ontarioloud.ca hit that patreon link and sign up to support ontario loud it takes two seconds you can do it for from three to five dollars a month it goes a long way to supporting our costs. Our supporters are amazing people. You'll be joining a great community. And hey, we know the times are tough out there and that not everyone might have money to throw out a podcast right now. That is totally cool. If you are looking for a way to support Ontario Loud, you can head to uh, the app that you're probably listening to this podcast on, be it iTunes, if it's Spotify, if it's Podbean, Podcatcher, Podmageddon. Podmageddon's not a real one, but you know what I mean. There's a lot out there. And give us a five-star review. Um, And that goes actually a long way to boosting us in the analytics, uh, helping more people find us. And that, it it helps uh, a whole lot. And so uh, with that, that's enough from me. We're going to go to Alexi's episode of Better Know a Ministry with Corey Preston on municipal affairs. Get excited for that. Welcome back to Ontario Loud. I'm Alexi White, and I'm delighted to be joined by Corey Preston, former policy advisor in the office of the Minister of Municipal Affairs. A good friend of the pod, Corey is currently a public affairs specialist in the agriculture industry, and he's here to tell us everything there is to know about the Ministry of Municipal Affairs, also known as MMA. So, Corey, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Alexi. Very happy to be on the pod. Awesome. Well, um, we are really pleased to have you. This is the first of what we're hoping will be a series of podcasts uh, now and then looking at some of the smaller ministries of government that we often uh, overlook, especially in the media and our lives, but do important, incredibly important work for Ontarians in so many ways. So municipal affairs felt like a good one to to start with. Um, why don't you set the stage for us just with your personal experience, Corey? What was your role in, uh, in MMA and um, what was it like working in the minister's office there? 
Absolutely. So I was with the uh, minister's office for municipal affairs for about two years, uh, from about 2016 until 2018. And in that time, my role primarily focused around the local government aspects and liaising with municipalities, uh, different mayors, councils, and the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, as well as the City of Toronto. And in that role, it really was kind of an all of government across the board for the provincial government, uh, connecting with our municipal stakeholders in order to advance those common priorities that we had between the two different levels of government. Uh, It was incredibly rewarding work. It uh, really opens up, uh, working in that position really opens up your eyes to different, uh, the different perspectives and different parts of the province from the very far northwest to the east to the southwest. Uh, you get a, a really good understanding of what different communities are facing in our province. And I, I bet you also get a good sense of the weirdness of municipal politics in certain parts of the province as well. Absolutely. There was never a dull day and uh, I would often go into the office with no expectations of what work I'd be working on on a particular <laughs> day uh, because uh, leaving it to what was unexpected uh, was, uh, was a better use of my time. Fair enough. So uh, what are municipalities, legally speaking, maybe set the stage for us that way? Um, I know there are hundreds of them. Do you, do you remember off the top of your head how many there are? Sure. Yes, there's 444 municipalities in Ontario. Uh, <laughs> easy number to remember, three fours. Uh, so there's 443 that fall under the Municipal Act, and then the City of Toronto has its own act, the City of Toronto Act. And so, and municipalities exist as some like to say creatures of the province. Really, they're totally empowered and, and regulated by provincial uh, oversight. Uh, so while they may receive funding or other type of uh, incentives or guidance or direction from the federal government, they really are a similar almost to an agency of the province. Through the Municipal Act or the City of Toronto Act, the, it describes their roles, their procedures, different policies that they must follow, what powers they have, and the province is the one that gives them that power to do that. So um, maybe moving on to what the Ministry of Municipal Affairs actually does, um, I took a little um, look of uh, around the public accounts for 2019-20 just to get a sense of where the dollars are being spent uh, in MMA. Uh, it's a pretty small ministry overall. Uh, we're talking, you know, only a few hundred hundred million dollars budget total. Um, half of so the program administration line uh, alone, it's about twenty one million that they spend every year on the ministry, and that's half salaries. Uh, and some of that, a lot of that, uh, is services, especially legal fees. But that's very very small for ministry overhead. I mean, not a lot of people work in Ministry of Municipal Affairs compared to some of the big ministries. And uh, I guess housing is the other big piece. Uh, now the ministry is the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing once again, uh, which it has been on and off uh, over time. Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of the relationship between municipal affairs and housing uh, and uh, how the ministry has evolved? For sure. So it makes sense often for housing to fall under municipal affairs or, or to be combined as one ministry, as it really is the municipalities that administer the uh, the affordable housing aspects of the province's uh, agenda. So while the funds come from the province to support affordable housing, it's local municipal administrators uh, that will help determine where those funds go and how that funding is spent. So I guess for the purposes of this uh, chat, we're going to leave aside the housing piece. Uh, It is over a billion dollars just by itself in operating and capital expenses a year. And we could, and we have on this podcast, done deep dives on housing policy and housing programs. But when you were at the Ministry of Municipal Affairs, it was just... uh, 
municipal affairs. So let's focus in on on that piece a little bit more. Maybe tell us a bit about the relationship between the ministry and then the 444 municipalities. One thing that's really interesting about working in the Ministry of Municipal Affairs is that you learn how old some of our municipalities really are. Many municipalities were created long before the country of Canada was around. So for the province to be changing boundaries or, or changing the way that they do things in a particular community is very difficult. These are long ingrained historic and traditional aspects of their community. So with that as the backdrop, working in municipal affairs, you have to really open, be open to those types of, of different perspectives. Uh, one of the things I thought when I was there was uh, it's, it's really confusing that there's a number of single tier municipalities, then there's lower tier municipalities, and there's upper tier municipalities that oversee some lower tier. And it, it, uh, to somebody coming in from the outside at first, you think, why don't we just have the same system across the board? Why yeah. isn't there always an upper tier and a lower tier? Or why isn't the, why aren't all municipalities just single tier? Yeah. And that's where I speak to some of that relationship of, uh, of the, the history that exists in those communities. And I mean, we've seen struggles with that in in the past, where province where the province has made changes, um, you know, brought in amalgamations, and and you could see the the kind of uh, rebuttal that the community has to those type of uh, those type of kind of broad stroke changes that the province uh, may feel inclined to want to make. So I think that's that's primarily the role of municipal affairs is to get that understanding protect those those traditions and where it makes sense make some changes uh, to the regulations and the rules around how municipalities behave oftentimes we would field calls from constituents or from MPPs that wanted the, the ministry to get involved in what was a local matter and uh, it can sometimes be a little difficult to to navigate that and, and try to get to a positive solution while still explaining and not overstretching that it's actually a municipal decision or municipal enforcement jurisdiction. So that's, that's a lot of it. Um, the relationship that the Ministry of Municipal Affairs has with the Association of Municipalities of Ontario and with the City of Toronto though, are very, very important. We would have regular nearly monthly meetings with the executive of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. And we would bring in ministers that representing other ministries to consult with those municipalities on their policies that might have an impact on the municipal level. For example, I remember that the Ministry of Health was uh, bringing in a senior strategy. And because municipalities sometimes operate uh, long-term care homes uh, and obviously have seniors and retirement homes in their jurisdiction. There was a lot of side impacts that could happen to a municipality based on what was in that senior strategy. So the Minister of Health, who was Minister Hoskins at the time, came to the table, presented, and then listened to the feedback from the executive of, of AMO um, and, uh, and, and took that into his final report. So so on any major provincial initiative or any policy change that could have impacts on municipalities and local governments, we would bring those conversations to a table where the uh, municipal leaders were and we would consult. 
Yeah, wow, your stories about uh, the AMO table bring back memories of taking big projects to that table on numerous occasions. I remember uh, consulting with AMO, and it does help a lot to have the guidance um, that you guys provided. Absolutely, and, and if I can, another is that, you know, there oftentimes the province and different ministries, for all the right reasons, will do things that will have financial impacts on municipalities. They'll have sure. added costs. Sure. Um, you know, the, the prime example of that that, being, that we hear often from municipalities is costs around uh, policing or firefighting. And while the province may, you know, have all the right intentions, it's oftentimes the municipalities that would brunt those costs. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a very important conversation to be had. And more times than not, the municipalities agreed with the priorities of the province wanted to see them come to fruition and, uh, and and came on side. It just sometimes we had to make some changes at the, the provincial policy level uh, to ensure that we weren't strapping them with the, the bill at the end of the day. One of the interesting things about municipal financial regulation, I suppose, is this uh, prohibition on deficits for municipalities. Uh, did you guys get a lot of pressure from municipalities around you know revenue tools and deficits and those kinds of issues? We definitely heard a lot of pressure and a lot of conversation around revenue tools for municipalities. Ultimately, property tax is their primary source of, of revenue, which is not always conducive to the number of services that a community needs. And municipalities aren't allowed to take on an operating deficit. They're allowed deficits for uh, and to plan debt for major infrastructure uh, projects. And other, like all things in municipal affairs and in likely in all governments, there's exceptions to all the rules. There's always an exception. Of course. Of course. <laughs> um, so I won't speak with any absolutes. Now, there's been some interesting conversations during the COVID-19 pandemic about whether or not municipalities should be allowed to take on deficits. For the most part, there seems to be a general agreement that municipalities should not be able to take on operating deficits. Uh, and that fundamentally comes down to a belief that that there's already two levels of government that are able to take on deficits. Their revenue tools are being based on the income tax system, uh, are more reliable and predictable. And that we wouldn't want a case where a municipality ended up running into serious debt problems and have and having a province have to bail them out or, the, or another level of government have to bail them out. And we've seen similar things in other jurisdictions, not in Canada. And I think that that's, um, you know, one of the things that informs our public opinion. Yeah. And I think it's, it's hard to undersell how complicated the finances are. I mean, I remember just, you know, just working in social assistance, for example, we did a big upload of costs that the previous Harris government had downloaded onto municipalities uh, and over time sort of pulled those costs back. I think there was also costs for the justice system that were also uploaded. You know, it's, to some extent, I would get frustrated when I'd see what appeared to be municipalities turning around and, you know, offering tax cuts, for example, with uh, with what seemed like uh, windfall uh, money that they were getting in. Um, but on the other hand, these things are incredibly complicated. I remember, uh, I think it was Hamilton uh, had a big tiff with the Ontario government going back and forth for months, each of them with different reports and different citing different stats on how, you know, whether they were getting more money from the province or sending more money to the province. I mean, the, the finances get incredibly complicated and it is, I feel like we're never going to get to a world where municipalities do not say we deserve more money and governments don't say we've already given you way too much. <laughs> sure. And it's, it definitely is a, you know, a political enigma. Even with those uploads that you were speaking about, though, you know, the province did still continue the Ontario Municipal Partnership Fund, uh, which is a, 
uh, hundreds of millions of dollars annual fund. It flows through finance, not through the Ministry of Municipal Affairs. It's targeted to small and northern municipalities uh, in recognition that, you know, their property tax base might not be enough to support the essential services. So it's like to your to your point of the complications of, of the finances is, you know, some municipalities are weighing heavily on this annual provincial subsidy, I guess you could call it, while other municipalities don't receive it at all. And uh, because they're in a different situation. So so let's shift gears a little bit, talk about one of the other areas of the ministry. And municipal services and building regulation is uh, cited as one of the, the major uh, focuses of the ministry. The public accounts talk about it as uh, the province's key point of contact with the building sector on matters related to Ontario's building code. Uh, the priorities in this area are to oversee implementation of the Municipal Act, Planning Act, Housing Services Act, Building Code Act, all the related regulations, policies, programs, uh, all that kind of stuff. Can you tell us a bit about sort of municipal services and building code regulation in general? Like what what is the building code? Maybe start with that. And um, and, and how does it work when, when the government, the provincial government wants to change it? So anecdotally, the building code is Ontario's single largest regulation. And if you've ever seen it, you wouldn't doubt it. It is hundreds of pages long uh, with all sorts of specific requirements for uh, very different aspects uh, that could be used in different types of building projects. In general, it regulates and guides all aspects of the new construction or renovations uh, that take place province-wide. So there's, doesn't matter what municipality you're building in, it has the same Ontario building code. When it comes to changes to the building code, the building code is updated quite often. Uh, and often those changes come through omnibus bills or through the budget uh, because they're pretty technical in nature and often recognize new technology or a new best practice uh, that or a new advancement in building that has been learned. Uh, or we, in kind of the worst cases, something has happened that has made a current building practice uh, is made it apparent that that current building practice is not safe and uh, changes will be made to the building code for that reason. Um, and an unfortunate example of that that comes to mind is the Elliott Lake uh, mall collapse right. and, and, you know, the kind of changes that were then made to the building code to change how parking structures uh, where, where they could be and where they couldn't be. So another example that I have that kind of demonstrates how the building code interacts with all aspects of the Ontario government and all of the different ministries is when the government was looking at the Climate Change Action Plan and what we could do to reduce those carbon emissions, there was a number of aspects of that came out of that plan that had direct impacts on the building code. So we had the Ministry of Environment working with us constantly, trying to establish what the best kind of changes to the building code could be, what the sector could absorb, what it couldn't. Uh, and one example that comes to mind is, is electronic vehicle chargers and putting in requirements to allow to uh, require electronic vehicle chargers in different types of buildings, whether it was commercial or residential builds. And then it gets down to the specifics of what those chargers actually are, like which model of a charger had to be present or which or what options a builder had uh, for what that charging station would be. Uh, so it gets right into those, those nitty gritty specifics that builders use uh, that maybe everyday Ontarians don't think about how the plug in their wall is actually permitted under the building code 
and another plug is not. Uh, so, so all aspects of, of buildings are kind of covered in that. Yeah, it's real big brother stuff, isn't it? Man. <laughs> a, a friendly big brother. Oh, of course. Always, big brother that wants, always a that wants the buildings to be safe <laughs> <laughs> and, wants, uh, and healthy. You know, there's different components that people used to build with. Think about, uh, you know, lead paint used to be something that was uh, not seen as a danger. And now, you know, we, we do see it as something that, that's not desirable. So um, all sorts of, of changes happen as we as society kind of grow and learn. Um, maybe turning to a final topic on more on the planning policy side of things. Uh, we talked about zoning a little bit previously, uh, but uh, one of the big areas that the ministry also dabbles in is some of these um, planning act and provincial policy statement initiatives, I guess you call them. So you've got things like uh, geographic specific regulatory policies with the green belt plan, which is obviously a political uh, one all the time, uh, the Oak Ridge's marine conservation plan, and the list goes on. So tell us a little bit about sort of the, the zoning side of things. What was your experience with the, the sort of the planning side of the ministry? Municipal affairs role uh, in planning is to provide a broad framework for how municipalities can go about growing their built environment. Uh, in terms of the green belt and the other plans that protect the geographical area around the GTA, we actually completed a review uh, during the time that I was at Municipal Affairs um, and, and made some updates to those plans. At the end of the day, we tried to maintain a science basis for the decisions that we made around the Green Belt. We wanted to protect water sources. We wanted to protect wetlands. Uh, and, and those aspects of nature don't adhere to human-built roads bridges, towns, and communities. What we're kind of seeing now is a prioritization of human desire and human need above some of those natural heritage aspects that at the time we thought were very important to protect. So Corey, the other piece of this that I want to get to is this idea of ministers zoning orders. And these have become uh, more high profile in recent months uh, because while they were all very rarely used, I think, under the previous Liberal government, the Ford government has rapidly increased the use of this tool. Can you tell us a little bit about these uh, MZOs, as they're called, and what their purpose is and what we're, what we're kind of seeing the Ford government doing with this tool? I can tell you as much as I'm familiar with them, which ultimately isn't that much because we didn't really use them. The minister has the authority through an MZO to overrule a local planning decision, as well as overrule provincial policy. When it comes to planning, there's the provincial policy statement, uh, which is kind of outlines the whole framework of planning and what are protected areas. And uh, an MZO allows a minister to ignore those requirements uh, for a particular parcel of land and overrule any other local decisions in order to allow some activity to take place on that property that otherwise would be not allowed or restricted. What we're seeing with the number of MZOs that are coming out of from this government is, I think, a interest in accelerating the application process. They'll use the term, it's about reducing red tape, and that this the MZO is a tool that allows them to reduce red tape, uh, because as soon as it's signed, the builder can move on with their project. 
to me, that's not really reducing red tape. For this government, I think this is the easier way out. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take as much effort or, or consultation, and potentially as much political flack as they're able to try to do it at a time when people are kind of preoccupied with other things happening. So when it seems to conspicuously happen a lot in uh, writings that are not held by their party, but maybe I'm reading too much into it. <laughs> I do think that the MZO is an important power to have because I can think of scenarios, and and it's not as if the like our government never used them. Um, and you can think of scenarios when something is so crucially important to whether it be the economy or to a community's health that it, it warrants breaking a rule that this one time. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how there's exceptions to every rule in municipal affairs. Um, so it, the MZO is the exception to any rule. I'm not saying that the MZO is a bad thing. I think it is an important tool. It just should be very rarely used and only used in those circumstances where the potential cost to human health or, or community's safety is at risk. Great. Thanks, Corey. Um, I, the only thing that I didn't get to that I do need to go back and ask you about before we uh, finish off is the controversy around municipal elections and the, um, the electoral system that municipalities use or, or don't use in this case, uh, and the work that the previous government did to bring in uh, ranked balloting that has now been uh, or is in the process of being uh, stripped away again by the current government. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, that whole experience? Why did the previous government move toward ranked balloting? What was the process there? And what are your sort of thoughts now looking back, uh, having now seen this government move back in the, the old direction to first past the post only? One of the things that we made a real priority and our government made real priority uh, when it came to our relationship with municipalities was about giving municipalities choice and self-determination. And one thing that we heard from a number of municipalities is that they were interested in exploring a ranked ballot uh, voting system. We did hear some that were interested in other systems as well. And ultimately, we made the choice to go with one alternative system to the first past the post, which was ranked ballot. Uh, and there, that decision was made for a number of reasons, but that at the end of an analysis, that was the, the one that we felt most comfortable allowing municipalities to explore. It's similar to other aspects that we've allowed municipalities to determine for themselves, uh, such as some would use electronic voting, uh, some still use paper and pencil. So it really was about a self-determination piece. But municipalities had to opt in. It wasn't as if it was something that we were imposing on them. And the majority, the vast majority of municipalities it showed no interest in, in changing their system. Uh, but there were a few. It goes back to the relationship that the province has with the municipality. Uh, remember, many municipalities were formed before the province even existed or the country. And they have been choosing their leaders for now centuries. It's a, a careful balance that the province needs to play in ensuring that it's that municipalities are run effectively, that their elections are fair, while also allowing municipalities the opportunity to decide for themselves how they choose their leaders. Awesome. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, Corey. Uh, that again was Corey Preston, the former policy advisor to the Minister of Municipal Affairs in the Wynn government. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alexi. Always a pleasure. And I uh, hope to be back on some other time. Sounds good. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Karima Tower Kapoor, 
and I'm Chris Martin. We have an amazing research intern in Harmon Mundy. If you have any thoughts about what you heard, you can get at us on Twitter at, at OntarioLab or go to OntarioLabMail at gmail.com. Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations uh, in Toronto. Uh, the traditional territories are the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ontario Loud is also recorded uh, in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Unceded territory was never given to settlers, it was stolen, and continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. So it is important to recognize this history, and even on a podcast where you might be listening somewhere else uh, to acknowledge the, the history of the land that we're on. All right, that's it for us this week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday.